Welcome to Parents Perspective. What's the matter? Sarah's dad poked his head into his daughter's bedroom doorway and saw her sobbing into her pillow. Oh, nothing, she croaked, turning her head away. Her dad sat down on the bed. You can tell your dad, you know. He patted her back gently. She turned a tear-stained face in his direction. It's just that Julie posted a video online of our practice for the gymnastics show. It was when I lost my balance and crashed into a whole pile of mats. Well, it's no crime to lose your balance, remarked her dad. You don't understand. Sarah's lower lip began to tremble. Greg thought it was so funny that he put a nickname on my segment. Nicknames can sometimes be funny, her dad ventured. Not this one, Sarah proclaimed. It's clumsy mumsy. And the tears began again. From a parent's perspective, what should we know about plugged-in teens? I'm Sandy Burt. And I'm Linda Perlis. Our guest studies how Internet use affects families and communities. Lee Rainey is director of the Pew Research Center's Internet and American Life Project, a nonprofit, nonpartisan fact tank that studies the social impact of the Internet. The project examines how people's Internet use affects their families, communities, health care, education, civic and political life, and workplaces. He is co-author of Up for Grabs, Hopes and Fears, Ubiquity, Mobility, Security, and Challenges and Opportunities, all based on project surveys about the future of the Internet. He's currently working on a book with sociologist Barry Wellman about the social impact of the Internet and cell phones. Lee is also the parent of grown children. Welcome to Parents Perspective. Thanks for having me. In your research, what do you see as the biggest difference between current family interactions and those of a decade ago? A lot of the differences, of course, are tied to technology itself. The big difference that we actually write about in our upcoming book is that families have become more like networks and less like cohesive, solidary units. People are living very busy lives. Parents are, children are, and they all now, in many cases, have pieces of technology that allow them to stay connected even as they are operating in their own little solar systems. So everybody has his or her own address book. Everybody has his or her own cell phone. Everybody has his or her own pieces of technology that they walk around with. And so the demands on families now to stay in touch through these technological means are greater because that's how you keep track of your, of your parents and your kids. And so it feels like the management of technology and the management of communication and coordination inside families is harder now, and it's very much tied to technologies. And yet this is just one of the symptoms of the very, very busy lives that lots of families lead now. In terms of challenges, what would you put up there for today's parents? The management piece is a big challenge, just literally staying on top of things and trying to figure out when the interventions are right. For families with teenagers, of course, an enormous challenge is tied to the rise of social media. The Facebook, MySpace, LinkedIn, Twitter, texting, YouTube, and things like that. Just as your story illustrated at the beginning of the program, it's an environment now where the simplest things that used to be pretty private, 
exchanging notes under the desk at school or whispered comments in the hallway or nasty uh, phone exchanges that were taking place in private lines, all of a sudden now that's a much more potentially public act. So that the little things that used to be pretty hidden in the side now are taking place in view of lots of people, and they stay in view. They're not fleeting anymore if they are captured in a photo or a video or text now. There are lots of episodes that we hear about it in our research where there's been an email exchange or there's been a text exchange or there's been a comment stream that flows out of Facebook, and someone will begin to highlight it and begin to post it or to refer to it, and then the sort of the community piles on. People feel like they need to make comments or people feel like they have to be snarky or people feel like they have to be involved in this conversation that at one stage felt like a relatively private conversation, but now is taking place in front of a lot of people and is preserved. So it can be viewed later on. It can be searched for later on. And so it's an environment where the management of people's identities, the management of their personal information and privacy is all jumbled up now with these technologies that make so many more acts public acts. So I think parents are struggling to figure out how to talk to their children about being safe, being careful about the things that they disclose, being careful about the things that seem like a good thing now but might come back to give them trouble later on when they're applying to college, when they're looking for their first job, when they're looking for romantic partners. One of the things that we see in our research is it's very common now when people are going out on first dates to Google the other person and to figure out what information is available on that person. So it's an environment where all of the old social norms of the more private and more contained spaces are being transported to this new sort of everybody's on stage, everybody's doing things in front of everybody else, and we haven't figured out how to adjust to the realities of many more acts being public, many more acts being searchable, many more acts being able to be viral. You know, they all of a sudden can be portrayed in front of a much wider audience than they ever could have in the past. So management of that element of your identity and your privacy is a big element to this. And this is all jumbled up in a variety of demographic changes that have swept through the culture, some of which are pretty tied up to technology, but some of which are taking place apart from them. Obviously, the structure of families has been changing for generations. You know, there are more single parents now taking care of kids. There are more blended families taking care of kids. There are more sort of mix and match arrangements where families are getting together. The role of women has radically changed in the past two generations. And so the parental negotiation over who does what, who's in charge of what, who's going to handle which aspects of life, that's all up for grabs in ways that it didn't used to be. And I think uh, adults are struggling with that and kids are sort of watching those struggles take place. So there are a whole lot of things that are going on in this world and technology is at the center of it because it's now the preferred way that lots of kids, particularly teenagers, like to communicate. We'll take a short break and be right back to continue our discussion on plugged-in teens. The popular book, Raising a Successful Child, Discover and Nurture Your Child's Talents, by Sandra Burt and Linda Perlis, is available at all major bookstores and on the web. Welcome back to Parents' Perspective. We are talking with journalist Lee Rainey about families and technology. Does your research show for, say, 12- and 13-year-olds how much exposure they 
have to all this internet interactive technology? It's really interesting that you picked those ages. Well, they're because the younger ones, I would think, of the group you work with. They're the youngest, the 12-year-olds are the youngest people that we talk to, and our work on teenagers focuses on those who are 12 to 17. But in our society, the public policy position of our government is that there's a huge difference between a 12-year-old and a 13-year-old. 12-year-olds can't access certain kinds of websites or can't access certain kinds of content, and websites have to take at least minimal steps to try to do things that allow 13-year-olds maybe to take part, but not to allow 12-year-olds to take part. In some recent research that we just published, we found that close to half of 12-year-olds have lied about their age in order to gain access to the things that all of their friends are doing. It's the age in which you get on Facebook. It's the age at which you can register for a Gmail account. And so a bunch of 12-year-olds, with the help of their parents, are accessing these sites because parents are saying, this is kind of a silly rule because my kid's in middle school. She sees lots of other kids in her school doing these things. Why should my kid be denied it? I want to set the rules for my own family. I don't want you know, the government to set the rules for that. So 12-year-olds are in a particularly interesting space because they tend to need to fake it in order to get on to some of the sites that they and their friends find very valuable to them. By the time they get to 13, you know, there are lots more 13-year-olds who are using Facebook and MySpace than there are 12-year-olds. And what we see is a progression that takes place over time. Older teenagers, the 16, 17, 18-year-olds, are much more likely to be in social networking spaces, to, to use Facebook, to use Twitter, to be very wedded to texting. And you can watch the progression of their lives grow. Their technology has been much more a part of their life as they've gotten older, and they've become more adept at it. They teach themselves a lot. They share a lot with each other. And so the situation for a 17-year-old is somewhat different from the situation for a 12-year-old. And I think your question sort of implies, are these new challenges or are these raising issues for kids of that age that are particularly harmful or hold particular peril for them? And the answer is probably to some degree, although kids are acting like kids just in new spaces. Kids have always been nasty to each other. Kids have always tried to figure out where they fit in the world. Kids have an enormously acute sense of where they fit in the status hierarchy of their schools and of their friendship networks. The big difference now is that they're working through all the issues that teenagers have always needed to work through. They're doing it in such more public ways and with tools that allow them to share sort of every minute of the experience, either by texting it or taking a photo of it and tagging it just the way your opening story did. I mean, one of the most interesting social interactions that we see is how teenagers in particular tag photos and then monitor the photos or videos that contain their names. And so there's this very deep sense that teenagers are monitoring their reputations. They're sort of looking every day, sort of what's being said about me, what's being portrayed about me online. And they are sometimes interacting with their friends saying, please take my name off that or please completely take down that photo or remove that video because it's hurting me or I don't like the way I'm seeing or I didn't dress the way I wanted to dress that way or, or lots of things. So it's added a very new element to the standard kinds of negotiations and calculations that teenagers have been making forever because this technology is just having their lives play out in much more public ways now. It seems like they can ask, remove that photo or take my name out of the story or whatever. But how 
are the results? They have good results. If they've taken the step to ask, what one of the most striking things that we've seen in our data is that most times kids have good experiences, and most times they get what they want out of those experiences. In other words, if they've seen a troubling image of them and they've asked a friend to take it down, and by and large, that happens. What we hear about in the culture, all the media coverage, of course, has been on the things that are very distressing about how kids are deeply wounded and sometimes commit suicide or sometimes do deep harm to themselves because of the things that have played out. There's a relatively small portion of teenagers for whom that is the case, but it's a really important cohort for us to study and for policymakers and for communities to care about. So giving them scaffolding and structure that helps them go through these troubling experiences, trying in some ways to mitigate these experiences or head them off even before they happen, there's a lot of public policy energy in that, and that probably makes a lot of sense. But the big story or the sort of the grander narrative that we pick up on our data is that most kids are having relatively good experiences. They witness altruism, friendliness, friendship, social support in these situations. And it's the minority experience, a very small minority experience that's really, really troubling. Is there any research about results, long-term, short-term, from this early cohort of kids with exposure? There is just beginning to emerge some studies on this. There are a lot of brain scientists and clinical psychologists and others who are beginning to worry about the potential impact of this. When we interact with screens, when we interact with pictures instead of text, different things happen in our brains. And there's now some work suggesting that when people begin to be exposed to these technologies, their brains rewire themselves. You know, there's brain plasticity. We Different neurons fire off uh, for different purposes and different aspects of our brain handle different situations for us. So there's just beginning to be work that's experimental work that looks at potential changes, but no one's yet come out with completely convincing, unalterable findings that this is all a change for the good or it's all a change for the bad. There's a tremendously large conversation inside families about this stuff. Just the way our parents told us don't take candy from strangers and how to behave in public and all sorts of things that sort of set the culture of the family. This stuff is now very much a part of family conversations where uh, more than 80% of parents have made it their business to talk to their children about how to behave in these spaces, what to do if something goes wrong, how to help people who they see struggling, basically how to be good citizens in these spaces. And in many cases, the people, the parent, the families that have had the most intense conversations and the most consistent conversations about this have had pretty good experiences. How can parents know what their kids are doing online? The first thing is ask. You know, there it, it used to be <laughs> that um, that there was a sort of very uh, pronounced sense among parents that they were the laggards. Their kids were running circles around them with technology. It wasn't something that they could comfortably talk to their kids about because the kids were so much more adept at using the technology than they were. That has pretty much changed in the decade of doing our work. And parents, first of all, feel emboldened, uh, in part because they're concerned about what's going on in these spaces. Many parents are very technologically adept. They use technology to a fairly well at work. They've learned how to build the cell phone into their lives. And so that sense that children were the natives and parents were the immigrants and the natives were always going to know more than the immigrants, that sort of vanished or it's mitigated in the past decade. And now I think parents just feel more comfortable and feel 
feel more that they have more permission from the culture to be talking to their kids about this stuff. And, and they do. The other thing that we see is that lots of parents do their own kind of monitoring. They used software tools that help them see the websites that their children have visited. They use parental controls, particularly with younger children, that limit the websites that they can go to. And they talk a lot amongst themselves. I mean, parents are networking themselves to try to figure out what's going on in other families. How are they coping with issues like this? Did you hear about this episode at school and stuff like that? So they're teaching themselves about the social environment of their children just through normal chatter. We'll take a short break now and be right back to finish our discussion on Plugged In Teens. Parents' perspective needs you, your feedback, your opinions, and not least, your donations that help with the cost of producing this award-winning program. Visit us online at www.parentsperspective.org and click on to Give Direct, iGive, or eBay at Mission Fish. Please help us continue to help you. Thank you. Welcome back to Parents' Perspective. We're talking with Lee Rainey about families and technology. Is there a role for the schools in all this? Schools are in a very troubled position by this because they see this happening. There's a lot of community pressure on them to have something useful to contribute to these conversations. One of the earliest pieces of work that we did in 2002 was to talk to tech-savvy students about their experiences of using technology. And what we learned from them was they were so frustrated that their school's basic position was, we're not going to use the Internet very much, and we're not going to encourage you to use the Internet very much for two reasons. First of all, bad stuff can happen online. And we don't want the school to be implicated in you seeing the wrong thing or encountering the wrong people or or something bad happening in your life. The other thing that was a concern and still is a concern is the digital divide. 95% of teenagers use the internet and about 85% use it at home. So most kids do, but there are still a portion of families in this culture who don't have access, and schools were very worried that if they gave assignments and they took advantage of some of the best stuff on the Internet, that the kids who didn't have access or the kids who had a little bit more trouble getting the access would be at a disadvantage to the kids who had it at home. Uh, To a degree, some of that has changed, and now schools are very much thinking about what rules to build around the use of technology. It particularly applies to cell phones. In most schools, according to the teenagers we talked to, just have an outright ban. You can't use it during the school day in class. And most students don't necessarily live by those rules, at least from time to time. It's certainly when they're in the lunch period or breaks between classes, and sometimes even when they're in classes, you know, they're texting under the desk or they're finding ways to share stories and to share information. But a lot of schools have been very concerned about the role of technology in the school building. We hear a lot and have heard more recently about schools that are being encouraged to think about the broader community culture, not just what's happening in school, but if there's bullying taking place outside of school, 
there are lots of communities that would hope that their school administrators and teachers would be aware of it and would be intervening agents in those things. And schools are struggling to figure out what's the right balance. You know, how much responsibility should they take for what happens outside of school? How much do they need to have anti-bullying programs or have good citizenship programs that are built into school? Because, you know, lots of other things have to happen in school and they feel acute pressures to meet the pedagogical standards of their communities and not have lots of extraneous stuff. So there's a big struggle in schools about the right balance of how to set rules and how to involve themselves in the more broad social context in which these technologies are used. And there's, you know, we get calls a lot of times and have given webinars and things like that to, to school districts and to PTAs and PTOs that are interested in hearing about just generally what's going on with teenagers and trying to infer from our data what might be sensible rules and sensible encouragements to have uh, for their communities. I think in any community, you have some kids whose parents are not involved. Sandy and I are both former teachers, and we dealt with those families without the technology of today. But those are the very ones who need the most intervention, I would think. Veteran teachers tell us that exact same thing, that some of the drama of growing up, some of the trouble of dealing with certain students and certain families is now just being played out in these new technological spaces in the way that they used to be played out over standard things like showing up for parent-teacher meetings or watching whether their kids completed their homework or not or, you know, signing report cards or things. There are always going to be families, and we certainly see this in the technology space, that are indifferent or certainly not feeling on a good footing with their students or they're busy. They're doing other stuff. And that's certainly playing out in the technology space. And what's challenging for parents in that environment is the classic parental challenge of what do you do with your kid when there are different norms and different expectations and different behaviors in families that, you know, house the friends of your children? And how do you interact with those families if they allow their kids to watch, you know, restricted movies, but you don't? What do you do during sleepovers if they allow their kids to drink before the drinking age? These are sort of classic struggles that families have gone through for a long time, but they're now, again, sort of being played out in somewhat different respects with the use of technology because these kids now have new ways to make life miserable for other kids or these families (laughs) have new ways to have the norms of their family culture leach over into the behaviors of other families. Is this a socioeconomic divide in large measure? It's partly that. I think the bigger divides are more, I might call, psychographic divides. It's people who feel comfortable with the technology, who feel comfortable intervening or talking to their kids about it, and people who feel that they don't know enough to talk smartly to their kids. So that's one divide. And that cuts across socioeconomic divides. Another one is just sort of busy parents have, and parents who have got other distractions in their lives or parents who have other priorities sometimes don't pay as much attention to these things with their families as parents who are deeply devoted to their children and want to have conversations about this. Of course, this is the generation that has given us the phenomenon called helicopter parenting. And now we're hearing about parents who storm into the office of their child's employer. After they've gotten, you know, a bad performance review or had an unpleasant encounter, all of a sudden you get a call from mom or dad. In this kind of climate, where do parents tend to go for support or guidance or direction? Well, they 
start with their friends. It's a networked world, and people, teenagers and parents themselves, whenever they run into a problem, when they have to make a decision, when they feel like they need a little TLC and other kinds of support in their lives, they network. They talk to the people who they think will give them a helping hand. Sometimes they're professional experts. They'll talk to a teacher that they really like, or they'll talk to a school administrator who's a friend, or they'll talk to a neighbor who they know is a teacher. There are also really great resources that are available. There is a very robust community of helpers that are out there that starts, not surprisingly, in the technology community itself. The providers of technology, the cable companies, the wireless companies, the internet service providers often have tremendously interesting, up-to-date, smart resources that families can draw. And it's usually one of the tabs on their websites, or they sometimes have helplines that are available for them. There are also um, a number of advocacy groups that provide really good resources. The Family Online Safety Institute, FOSI, F-O-S-I, puts out regular resources that do a couple of things. First of all, they're just how-to guides about how families can cope with this stuff and what's going on. They also do a really good job of curating other resources. So they put out compendia of links and other reference works that families can consult, and they update it, I think, every year. And families can literally go through a pretty long roster of resources that might give them a helping hand on this. Um, And there's another organization called Common Sense Media, which has spent a lot of time trying to figure out how children and families can navigate these new spaces, what some of the smarter policy recommendations might be. And so they're an advocacy group that cares about this stuff, but they've also done some great research and they just have resources that families can consult as they try to understand what's going on in this world and maybe think about boundaries for their kids. You have certainly helped us understand what's going on in this world. So, Lee Rainey, thank you very much for being with us and helping us to try to at least mentally navigate the technology field that's out there for kids. Thank you for having me. The best way to get in touch with Parents Perspective is to email us at parentsper at gmail.com. Our first listener will receive an autographed copy of our book, Raising a Successful Child, Discover and Nurture Your Child's Talents. Just email us at parentsper at gmail.com and give us your name and snail mail address and mention show number 494. Tell us, if you can, also what station you're tuning into. Visit our website, www.parentsperspective.org, where you can even listen to a show of your choice. Or check us out at facebook.com slash parentsperspective. This is Sandy Burt and Linda Perlis. We're glad you could share Parents Perspective. Today's program was made possible with generous support from the Evelyn Sachs Trust. Parents Perspective is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation, and the show is made possible by your financial support. Thank you for your contributions. Donations can be made online through GiveDirect, iGive.com, or MissionFish at eBay, or you can send checks or money orders to Parents Perspective Incorporated, Post Office Box 42283, Washington, D.C., 20015. Our sound engineer is Kent Hitchcock, and music for this program was composed and performed by Jonathan Burt. Jonathan Burt.